I will take you with me. You might learn something. About soccer? Nah, mate. Not about soccer. And for fuck's sake, stop saying soccer! There are multiple ways you could call them. Soccer jerseys, kits, football shirts. And there are many things to say about them. Whether they look good or ugly, whether their color harkens back to a club's long tradition or is kind of an unwelcome innovation, whether they're from Nike, Adidas, Umbro, or Puma, and how much do they cost now? And how much will they cost on eBay in 10 years? And if a name is on the back and so on. I have opinions on some of those questions. I own some jerseys, none of them for the design, but for some level of connection that has been there. My daughters have a couple of jerseys each for similar reasons. And there are way more jerseys out there that I would never ever buy or wear or give them to wear for various reasons as well. And I'm not a collector. And I spontaneously throw up at the sight of PSG jerseys on school age kids. Well, almost. But we'll cut through all that today with the help of Alex Ireland. He is the author of a very recently published book. It's called Pretty Polly, The History of the Football Shirt. We'll attempt a bit of a material history of the beautiful game here. So through the lens of materials and fabrics and in various colors, we'll trace football from the beginnings to what it has become today. Only in sketches, of course, because we didn't have 10 hours, but still. For a little table of contents, here is what we talked about. One, the origins. So why did teams start to wear the same jerseys and colors anyways? Then what stories do crests and badges and numbers tell us? Then fabrics, especially this shift from cotton to various plastics and the opportunity that that switch opened up. And finally, today's landscape. So brands, internationalization, sponsors, TV, the collector market, and all with plenty of concrete examples along the way. So get dressed. And before you do, don't forget to leave a star rating in your podcast app. If you haven't done so already, it really helps. Or tell a friend who is interested in this kind of different soccer coverage that also helps. And or leave me a voicemail through the link in the show notes. It's just two clicks for feedback or topic suggestions or just greetings. I don't know if those help, but it would certainly make me happy if I hear from you. Thank you for being out there. Do you have a show that you really love? One that you feel so groovy in? You don't even mind if it starts to fade. That only makes it nicer still. I love my shirt. I love my shirt. My shirt is so comfortably lovely. I love my shirt. I love my shirt. My shirt is so comfortably lovely. Do you have some jeans that you Hey Alex, welcome. Thank you for your time. You're the visiting professor today, visiting professor of cotton and poly and fabrics and everything that they mean beyond just a piece of fabric. But I assume there was a journey to that point through football and through soccer for you. Could you tell us a little bit of what your background is? How did you come to the sport and how did you interest in, in shirts start? Oh, thanks for, for having me on. It's it's great to always great to chat about shirts and the, the book. So I started as a, a football fan and a, uh, as a kid, uh, born in the early 1980s in Manchester and started playing, started watching Manchester United, who are my local side in 92, 93, which was a pretty fortunate coincidence given how things went from from them and 
then I, I started to get football kits in the 90s and uh, became a teen and early 20s, just bought more and more. And I didn't realise it was I was a collector. I just bought them because you have to have something new to wear when you play a, a pickup game. And a few years ago, I realised that there are other people who had that similar interest in kits. And so I started getting involved. There's a very healthy social media community around kits and people who have a real interest in them and got involved with that. And then I had wanted to be a football journalist when I was at university. I went down a very different route. And now I'm a, I think you'd say like associate professor in physiology. So about as far away from football and culture and art as you could imagine but I'd started writing a few years ago for different magazines particularly about football shirts and then that escalated and while I was learning about this and writing about it hear all these fantastic stories about the development of the football kit and I just wanted to bring it together in this one book and, and show how all the different elements that litter a modern shirt came to be. While we're on it, any opinions about the current Manchester United shirts? Uh, a mixed bag. I think the the home shirt is pretty solid, isn't it? It's not something I imagine we will be looking at as a bona fide classic for both the design itself and the likelihood of us having a successful season on pitch. Uh, I really liked the a white shirt. So I thought that was the, the third shirt. So the use of the devil logo in place of the crest, I really, really like. I think that's very nice. There's a similar thing for Arsenal with their Canon logo. I think it's so a big part of the club, that devil branding that is genuine because it's been there for so long. So I like that. I thought that worked well. The uh, green striped kit <laughs> that's what I was getting at, yes. Yeah, that's um let's hope it's a grower. It's it's certainly distinctive. It's something new. You couldn't call, uh, accuse them of raiding the retro bin to do a lukewarm copy of a previous kit. Again, let's hope that it doesn't appear likely at the moment, but we have a classic moment on pitch that will sort of sear it into our memories because it might struggle to do so on its own. At least you don't have bubbles printed on your shirt that look like Homer Simpson's eyes. <laughs> well, you start the book uh, with a, a quote from Gene Williams, um, important historian of football, who says, Kit is really important and integral to the history of football. It's not a peripheral subject. It's absolutely central. In the large scheme of history writing, it's only been a few decades since historians actually worry about stuff. So build stuff, uh, stuff that people wear, stuff that people use, material, material culture. And Kit is probably as close as you can get to material culture in terms of football history. But that's a relatively recent thing, recent occupation. How did you come to the conclusion that Kit is central? I think it was when I started speaking to other people online about it and examining it a bit more and you enjoy it from different perspectives that other people like. I was really just a footballing romantic and it would be somebody like Gay Comendietta and his Valencia team 
him dragging them all single-handedly to the Champions League final or Fernando Torres exploding out at, at Atletico Madrid, this homegrown wonder kid. So it was very much a romantic vision of the game that I enjoyed the kits and I wanted to replicate that in um, do a very poor imitation of it when I, I went to play myself. But then you see it through other people's eyes and you get to appreciate other elements that are evocative, nostalgic and and so on. And I think somebody who's been incredibly important is a guy called John Devlin that Kit fans will will know who wrote these beautiful books called True Colours, which have catalogued leading English uh, teams kits and also international teams kits across a series of decades. And I think he was one of the first to take a really serious look at it and say, this is something worthwhile. It isn't just a polyester throwaway garment. When did the first one of these come out, by the way? Devlin's. John's books. I think it would have been maybe 15, 20 years or so ago. And those books are trailblazer internationally to um, even other countries with big soccer publishing cultures. Germany are just catching up, I feel. So the first big collections are just coming out there. What then is the intervention of your book, 15, 20 years on? What is the angle that you offer that's, that's particular, that's different? And what made you say, yep, there's a book in there? It's a, I think it's a celebration of the whole thing. It's an overview of this history. So you take what we have today. If I think about, we talked about the Manchester United shirt. So that will have a, a jazzy design. It will have a big sponsor across the front. There will be a manufacturer there. There will be a crest. There will be a sleeve competition patch. There'll probably be another charity patch. There'll be a name set and a number on the back. There's all these different kinds of adornments on it. And none of them were there even a hundred years ago. So we don't even have to go back to you know the 1870s or something like that. But but really, if you looked at a say an English first division side in 1923, then they would just wear a fairly plain shirt. It might be striped, it might be quartered, but it certainly, certainly wouldn't be more complicated than that. There wouldn't be a sponsor. They wouldn't wear a crest. So teams, unless it was a cup final, because of the expense, they wouldn't wear that. There were no, we weren't even any player numbers on the back uh, until about another decade after that. So it's that evolution of how it became so complicated from something simple over a hundred years. And inevitably it's not something that's existing in a vacuum. It's that there's societal, commercial, cultural reasons why those things became desirable. And let me help you a little bit here. I think the book is actually more than an overview. It has an, an argument in it as well. Uh, and it's, in my view, expanding the the shirt, the kit narrative beyond the collector, between beyond the people that are worried about kits and shirts already, and is carrying forth and really making the argument that you quote from Gene Williams in the intro. I think this is this is central uh, to the story of football in general. the story start how do teams or clubs in the first place decide we need to look roughly the same or we need to put some kind of color on us or 
how does the idea of a uniform start in the first place? Well, I think it's just anything that I suppose when when you play at elementary school or something, kids magically get by, don't they? Everybody's wearing oh, it'd be very different in the US, but sorry, coming from an English school where we all wear the same uniform, you would have 20 kids running around in a white shirt or a navy jumper and somehow I have no idea how we would figure out who was on what team but generally it's a pretty simple concept that you need to be able to tell who's on what team you know the referee for example needs to know and so people would start by having caps or a sash and then eventually teams would choose a a particular we have to have a different shirt but even then the idea that what happens if we come up against a team with the same shirt hadn't occurred and there was a, a clash in the, the last decade of the 19th century between Sunderland and Wolves, who football fans may know now for a beautiful gold, uh, deep gold kit, but they actually wore the, the red and white stripes that Sunderland has. And, and this was the first time it occurred to anybody that ah, perhaps we each need to have a kit to to be able to play against each other. Where did they get those kits from? So initially they would get them from just a gentleman's outfit to see when it, before the professional era, you would have a club and and when they'd decided we're going to be the black and white stripe team, they would give you some instructions, how many stripes you should have, how broad they should be, et cetera. And you go to your gentleman's tailors and you would get your shirt in roughly those proportions and so those clubs, many of them in the, the in England at, at that time, sort of came from people from like higher socioeconomic status, people with more um, resources. But you would note that when they start to become more working class teams, they would have really simple shirts, maybe a white shirt or something like that, that was much easier and much more affordable. But everybody would buy their own shirts, so they wouldn't be uniform. They'd be a rough idea, and you try and copy it as as well as possible. And then when it becomes to the professional era, you start to get uniform provision of kits by the club because they're paying for it. And so they they do that. And then they start to go for outfitters, either for a gentleman's outfitter or this uh, start to be manufacturers like Bukta, who are one of the first uh, sort of big scale manufacturers. When do those start? So outfitters who specifically design for football clubs? So look in tail end of the 19th century, but a lot of them have died away since since then. There's only book to, that kind of hangs around still. So people have kind of ebbed and flowed. And one of the things that complicates the uh, history and studying it is that in many cases, so... Unlike now, you have Nike Town, you have the Adidas store. That's not really how they would operate, that they would sell as wholesalers to dedicated sports shops, and then they would be the ones who would contact the club. So Manchester United were not in contact with Buckter or whoever directly. They would just go down to the local store and and purchase that. And often the sports store would rebrand it, so they would take out the Buckter logo and put their own logo in. And and so sometimes it's kind of difficult to track exactly who wore what in the, the initial yeah. stages. Are there jerseys from these early stages that we know about in color that achieved iconic status pretty quickly? Um, 
there are some clubs that still retain their original colours, uh, but a, a lot actually. I think it's something like only about sixty percent of about sixty percent of the teams that have current colours and still going now had those colours by nineteen hundred or so. So there's still been a lot of flux and right. yeah, teams until maybe the nineteen sixties or seventies. Often, actually, they would change their colours if they had a run of bad form. It's now nowadays the answer is to reach for a new manager, a new coach. But in that case, it was you know, maybe this having a cerise shirt or or often imitating a successful team's strip. So like with Leeds and taking Real Madrid's beautiful yeah. or white shirts, then you would hope to get some of that kind of like karma or uh, um, good fortune that a better mm-hmm. team had. Yeah. Um if we take your own club or the English club that I follow, I know West Ham started with a different name and then dark blue and then the claret and the lighter blue came in later from Manchester United. Founding colors are not the red devils, but it's golden green or yellow and green. Do you happen to know why did they transition and how do clubs make that, make that choice? I think there's lots of different, reasons the so united originally had this green and yellow which was related to the railway company that they were 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 founded it was founded as a workers team for the newton heath railway company and then there was a new backer who wanted to support them in the early part of the 20th century and he mandated that they move to red thought it was a you know maybe a more saleable color other teams it's just it's a real mix of the reasons why teams ended up with the the shirts that they did. Juventus had an English player who sent back for some shirts and ended up with some Nottingham Notts County shirts. Others, the colours of run when being washed in the river. In some cases, it's just availability. Some it's it's a purposeful imitation. So the, there's all kinds of reasons. Sometimes it's a a reference to the origins of the founders so blackburn rovers their distinctive red and sorry blue and white half obviously not that distinctive but they they were the same school colors of the founders they went to this malvern private school and obviously carried some affection for it and that became rovers style what struck me especially in reading the parts of your book that cover the early history of kids was how malleable these colors are and how quickly and sometimes even seemingly randomly they change. And it made me wonder if fans like me today, who are very tradition-minded and who would yell if their club would change the colors on, at least on the home shirt, significantly, if we are, if we're justified in viewing our club colors this way, when in the early ages people didn't any thoughts on that yeah absolutely i I agree that i think there's a few people who who think that idea that we're getting ever more precious that elements it's freezing your childhood essentially what was what was de rigueur in your childhood is obviously the way that things were best and how they should be forevermore and shirts earlier on right people as we've talked about the people more flexible in terms of the color but there was also 
it's just a functional thing. You couldn't buy it. You couldn't. So I think you couldn't be part of it in that way, which probably brought people a lot closer when they could wear the shirt, I think. But they also wouldn't have an, an emblem, a club crest. It would only be a, a cup final. And even then, right. the, the crest would often be the city crest or something rather than a dedicated, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the 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 West Ham crest. So there's less to get attached to. And it is just a functional garment. Why would you care about it? It's just the thing that they have to walk out in to make sure you can tell them apart on the pitch. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. And you couldn't buy it. I mean, it's not yes. a commercial thing yet. It's just purely for the players. Yeah. And not something, you know, beautiful to look at that you hang on your wall or that you impress your friends with or anything like there's nothing like that. The yeah. fabric is mostly cotton at the time. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And, and wool, wool earlier, earlier than that. Uh, but you're right. And, it, and there's, again, it's that idea that there's nothing unique about it that's yours. If you wear a red shirt and you buy one from Umbro or, or Bukta and another team wears a red shirt, you wear the same shirt. You know, they're interchangeable on, on pitch. It's just a colour to indicate which team is which, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I grew up kind of in the, the rise of the ultra movement in Austria, where it was it was very important to sing for your colors because players come and go much more so than they did in the original phase of football. And now often the colors, I think, have become something to latch on to for fans that they weren't originally or haven't been for the longest time. Yeah. And it's funny, our, our relationship with them because there's a lot of contradictions in it if i if i think myself i think of myself as a fairly reasonable level-headed individual but my son plays kids football he's seven years old and his team have a sky blue shirt which is that (laughs) of manchester united's city crosstown rivals and something deep in sort of primitive area of my brain it really doesn't sit sit well and uh but then on the other side i would say i'm a i'm a red somebody you know who do you support somebody from the city says oh i'm a red i'm a red but our strongest rivals probably are liverpool who would also identify oh i'm a red i'm a red so it's, it feels right. really fundamental to us but it's it's also something that couldn't even separate us from probably our keenest rivals you already mentioned crests and numbers. We'll get to sponsors later, but when does stuff become attached to the jersey? Like crests, like numbers, logos, things like that. That's That was a really interesting discovery because I, I knew some things that other kit, all of us kit collectors knew certain things that there was um, first emergence around 1930 of squad numbers that we we knew that happened and we also knew that the first sponsors came in the mid 60s but then when you look into it a lot of this is very anglo-centric there's a really kit big kit community in the uk and you realize and you know it was the birthplace of soccer and it had a really big influence on on lots of uh, its its distribution throughout the world but you realize so many things have been done decades before elsewhere so if we think about the the squad numbers they were first appearing in the very first few years of the 20th century so australian new zealand sides were, were having numbers 
And if we have a look at sponsors, again, there were US sides. So things like teams like Skull and Steel, who had a corporate backer, their, their corporate backer's logo would be spread across their, their shirt when they were playing in the Open Cup around 1920, something like that. Uh, so, yeah, they, they a lot of these elements came very early on, but didn't often would just be in these very defined football territories because we also have to remember that there were no TV broadcasts until 1927 and the first radio football broadcasts weren't until that year as well. So if you wanted to watch a game, you had to go to it. So it wasn't the ability to absorb other countries, other leagues' cultures for maybe two, three more more decades. Well, it all began in the year of one when Adam was the first man And the girl called Eve, so we believe, was made to be his woman She led him up the garden of Eden by a tree Then she offered him her apple and he cried out suddenly Where's me shirt? Where's me shirt? I feel a prophet was a without me shirt Something changes after World War II. TV plays a role. Um, the change in material plays a role as well. What mix of factors comes together here in the 70s and 80s that make shirt culture, the whole world of kids, look much closer to what we would be used to today? Yeah, there are a few things. There's so the, in the 19. 50s, 60s, the, we had the advent of floodlights. And so actually we went to very simple kits because they look beautiful, these these bold single-colour designs against uh, floodlights. They look, looked fantastic. And we also have a kind of modernisation of the football kit and led by teams in warmer climates who obviously wear, wear that and, and there's a clash of cultures people might know about there's a in england retained this sense of superiority in in football this feeling that english game led the world and other nations had certainly caught up by this point but it wasn't until this humiliating defeat by hungary in, in 1953 that actually england began to realize that the other nations had caught up and even surpassed it and one of the elements that looked kind of anachronistic it was they had these long sleeved heavy jerseys that were little change from the 1870s era we talked about earlier and england did england was competing in those yeah yeah Yeah. and And hungary rocked up in short sleeves and short sleeves next lightweight and just looked light years ahead of on the pitch and how they played and from the shirts. Yeah. The golden age of, of Danube football plays yes, a role certainly. there, of course, but also translates into short culture. So are you suggesting that English teams then borrowed some of those material changes from abroad? So Umbro, the next year, released a style called the Continental, which copied this cool v-neck lightweight short sleeve style and england wore the umbro jersey for the first time in 1954 so a year after uh that game against hungary and that that became a really popular style with club teams as well 
Mm-hmm. Still cotton, though. Yes. When do other fabrics get in the mix and how do they transform what players wear? So really around the 1970s, you start to get uh, things like nylon, polyester coming in, so these artificial materials. And initially they have some impact, but it's really in the 1980s where they start to really change what you can do with the designs. So to go back a step, uh, Admiral Umbro of, of invented the idea of a replica kit in the around 1959 when you start as they offer this box set that children that can be bought for children and aimed at children we have the shorts the short the socks and the um sh- shorts shirt shorts and it's in the colors of different teams but as we said before there's still nothing really to differentiate it as a manchester united shirt there's no unique aspect of the design it's just you follow a red shirted team with white socks and white shorts and admiral a guy called bert patrick had the idea in the the early 1970s following some changes in the copyright law that actually if you make a custom design for manchester united for leeds united for england then the customer has to purchase it from you it becomes distinctive and it becomes commercially valuable and so that starts a, a replica wave, which we can talk about later. But one of the key drivers of that then is this inclusion of polyester, because initially it's quite hard to make the designs distinctive because you've got to cut pieces, sew them together. But then in the early 1980s, you start to be able to print, to sublimate, to dye a path, complex pattern into the fabric. And you also manage to, there's jacquard machines that can weave patterns in the fabric. So from quite a sort of simple portfolio of things that a designer can do, maybe put a stripe in or something like that, you suddenly have almost limitless creativity in multiple dimensions. So you can make a pattern as a weave, you can make it as colour, almost as complex as you like. And that's where things just completely transform. We have talked mostly about English brands so far, but now there's a rise in kind of a marketplace for shirts. Um, the range of designs you can have. When do non-English companies make a go at it as well? I mean, Hungary must have had their shirts from somewhere, obviously, supposedly other more southern nations with different fabrics and designs as well. When does the market become global? Are we already at that age? Brands like Athleta in Brazil Obviously, uh, Adidas and Puma in Germany, who are developing in their their own market in the say the nineteen fifties and sixties and, and so on. Uh, Le Coq Sportif in France. So, similar sort of emergence, you know, roughly the same same time, but again, would largely serve a domestic market. And then, really, probably in the nineteen seventies and very much so in the nineteen eighties, you have this international swapping of Umbro supplying. Ajax and Inter Milan and and Napoli and and teams like that and conversely Lock Oxportif sponsoring Everton and Tottenham Hotspur in the early eighties, which is quite a change. You started the story with clubs having to go out or individual players having to go out and buy their supplies. Now we are at the stage where suppliers are trying very actively to become suppliers of certain clubs. Do some clubs in this in this era to just not have a choice? You go with the cheapest, you go with the worst designs. Is that a is that a thing too? 
Yeah, I think I think gradually it's a very small market where it can be profitable because initially when admirals start this replica industry, their first club is Leeds in 1973. They pay £10,000 to them to supply their kit, but it is only for children. So there's a limited market and it's only really where it opens up to adults in the late 1970s and then towards the late 80s when actually it becomes very popular as a fan to wear your your jersey because initially it isn't that suddenly it's more and more acceptable certainly in England the game has gone from its nadir in the mid 80s where it, it's very unpopular there's a lot of violence it isn't somewhere that's seen as accessible to 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 women um and to other groups it's it, it suddenly becomes a wider, more popular, more mainstream game and the market explodes. And so then it's not just the Manchester United's and Liverpool's that can be profitable, but but the second and third tiers as well. And it becomes a big part of their income stream. What role does TV play? I mean, at some point, these clubs show up on TV. The jerseys show up on TV. They look different than they would perhaps under floodlights or in person. Uh, what is the influence there on shirt design and on how clubs present themselves to a much bigger world all of a sudden? I think it has a really important influence There's in a few ways. So you have this uh, emergence, really, television, the ability to broadcast live internationally. You know, it comes around 1960s or so. And then there's the sponsors that understandably come in with it now having an audience of a million, 10 million, however many it is that as a company, this is a very good place to, to promote your brand. And you start seeing companies sponsor with the idea that then their brand will be shown to not just 30,000 people at a home game, but the the millions watching it at home and also then the more overt branding of the shirt so until the 1970s you don't know it's an umbro or an adidas shirt there's no external branding sometimes in the case of the keepers but really the outfield players don't have it so when you've got these close-ups on george best on pele etc suddenly it becomes very valuable to people should know that they're wearing umbro and they should they're wearing adidas or puma Are clubs at this time still thinking about changing colors? Because now a much bigger audience is there. Colors get associated with certain clubs. You do have replica kits circulating already. Are we done with the phase of clubs changing their shirt colors by now? I think largely this is when it's 1970s is where it starts to come down. There are there are some like again like Real Madrid with the sorry like Leeds with the Real Madrid kit that, that are changing, but. Yes, this is where we're generally, if you look at most modern clubs now, they're in what they were in in the 1970s. Away kits, are they universal by now as well? And how often do clubs change their shirts? We're at pretty much every season now. Is this also the time period when changing kits starts in order to maintain recognizability? Or are we not there yet? Yeah, so... Up until this point, it's maybe for every four or five years because there's no real advantage to the brand for them to change because there's nothing to sell, really. Right. Um, so it's nice probably to have a new style for Umbro every so now, never, now and off, now and often. So to to allow you to sell, you know, go in the come out in the latest kit sort of thing. But um, 
the away shirts have been around for a long time. We start to then have the third kits emerge, so that in the case of the clash of both the home and the uh, away shirts. But yeah, generally people have a traditional color that they will they will wear and again like the home shirt it can change but they tend to be quite stable there isn't that commercial advantage there is later on of having something very innovative and new well i'm afraid we have to talk about sponsors now i can't tell you who the first one was in germany a liquor company and in austria it was actually my club Sturmgratz, with an oil company in front what's the bigger picture here how do sponsors end up on shirts and how do companies buy into the big business of shirts yeah so the the there are sponsors who mentioned a company backers very very early on so we've talked about some us sides in the second world war fiat took over torino because automotive industry was a protected industry so workers could remain there so the clubs petitioned that players would be employed there so they would be kept away from the battle from the battlefield from the front line and so you have the Fiat logo on Torino, which is unusual because it's Juventus it there, City Juventus, Rivals. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you, but but these are associations between a kind of a commercial back, you know, like Bayer and Leverkusen or Volkswagen and and Wolfsburg. So the, the, company the, clubs, where it makes yeah. sense to just have the name on there. Yeah. That's it. Whereas it, it it's really the fifties and sixties. Uh, so we have a, a European club that the sorry a Uruguayan club that is, is the first South American sponsored clubs. Then you get Austrian and, and German clubs start to be sponsored. The I think Eintracht Braunschweig uh, are yes the famous Jägermeister buck yeah. on the front of the shirt for Eintracht Braunschweig second league that, now in Germany. Yeah, that's it. So so. And then finally, it comes to to England, which is, and the authorities all the way through, not talked about this, but all, all the way through, the authorities display this really conservative, conservative, traditional attitude to shirt design, and every new innovation is resisted. And and certainly that was the case. So uh, there was a Northern Ireland international who was he was a chairman of Kettering Town, who were I think a conference team at. at at that left so the the fifth tier in english football and he'd managed to get kettering tires to sponsor them but the fa wouldn't allow it and then they were presented as kettering tea and he suggested it was kettering town rather than kettering tires and it opens up a whole period of like a cat and mouse kind of game that happens across multiple countries and it's actually one of my favorite parts of the story of this a battle between the authorities who want to suppress sponsorship and the teams who obviously want to profit from what are actually quite modest sums at the start. Yeah, there's a case in Austria where um, Austria Bean, Austria Vienna still in the first league, uh, rocks up with just a beer glass on the front of the shirt because uh, there was no agreement on whether or not the name of the brewery could be played as well. Right. Any famous sponsors from that first era other than Jägermeister? It seems like alcohol is a is a thing. What else found its way onto shirts early on? I think there's some quite sort of well, you notice it and the nature is, is very much the same until the 90s. It's kind of quite conventional household names. So things like Hitachi were the first Liverpool sponsors, and, and Sharp, similarly that were Manchester United, electronic goods, it's things that are quite 
tangible goods, car manufacturers, food, etc. Uh, so consumer goods. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah very different from from today. And you're just almost selling direct to the consumer. It's not about a wider brand awareness. This is can we flog more video recorders or things like that. Sharp is there for a long time on Manchester United shirts. Any cases of where fans resist a sponsoring agreement? And we see that now every now and then. You see fans' resistance against betting companies, um, against sponsoring that is associated with nation states, like with Bayern Munich and Qatar Airways on the sleeve the last few seasons. Uh, is that a thing early on already? I think it there's the nature of the brands means that there aren't, I don't think there are, there, there are fewer of those things. And I think we're probably less socially aware and sensitive to, to things. So there's lots of alcohol backers, which now a lot of, they are permitted still in some areas. They're not permitted in, in others. Again, gambling became massive in terms of sponsors. That's been rolled back, but I think there was much less of that. They're probably more kind of superficial things than that. So, Schalke had uh, Kircher, who were the power washer. Yes. Firm. Yeah, the cleaner yeah. company. Mm -hmm. Yes. So they became their sponsor in the mid to late 90s. And for those who, who don't know, uh, Schal Schalke's deadly rivals are Borussia Dortmund, who have a yellow and black shirt. That's their very distinctive colours. And unfortunately, Kircher's colors are yellow and black and Kircher wanted a yellow away kit which is just the last thing that Schalke fans wanted and actually it was going to be yellow with black details and this was just too much so it was made as a yellow shirt with a blue collar which was still despised but but just about got through but then unfortunately the Kircher lo logo was rendered in black initially so they they've had a yellow and black shirt of their their deadly rivals and that circle has closed by the way dortmund's current sponsor one on one or one and one it's a mobile phone provider their company logo is blue and white and when they signed a sponsoring agreement part of that agreement was that it could only show up in black and white on the dortmund jerseys and yes. not in not in shell case color that's a, kind of going into some some sponsors I think it's a real bane of a designer's existence is is having to so some sponsors are inoffensive some are positive and become kind of quite iconic and then others are very unpleasant again as a Manchester United fan the Chevrolet sponsor just something about it just it never sat within the shirt it felt like an integral part of it it always was just this something that had been slapped on after the design was made. Speaking of offensive, I do think you give a nod to the famous case in Germany where a condom manufacturer is not allowed to be on shirts, right? Yeah, so the, there's been lots of people who've tried to, I mean, you could say this is very much like a health-related message. This is a, a positive thing, but... Yeah, uh, I think so, yeah. But, but yeah, there's been all kinds of things adult websites, um, narcotics, uh, yeah, funeral parlours. The, there's been a, a whole host. Any industry is so it's so universal, isn't it? Football reaches to every part of society, so every product manufacturer wants a part of that. 
as you said, there are sponsors that fit on jerseys more intuitively and look good. And then there's leagues and clubs where anything goes. I'm thinking particularly, if you want to Google it as you listen to this, of TSV Hartberg in Austria. Uh, but that's just one of quite a few clubs in smaller leagues whose kit is basically all sponsor. All littered up with sponsors from top to bottom. Do you have opinions about that? Is there such a thing as too much? Or is that its own form of recognizability, perhaps? I think it would depend on the perspective. So from starting, if it was Manchester United, I don't think I would like that. I don't think I would like my my club having that. As as a kit fan, some of these things contribute to the personality. I think for the Mexican league and some of the other set, the South American leagues, that it feels like a personality of the kits that they, that's how they look. They are littered with sponsors. That's an, you know, you're watching a Copa Libertadores game when you see those. So yeah, as a, a, a distance observer, I kind of like them, but I, I it, not in my backyard kind of attitude. While we're on it, when are betting sponsors supposed to be phased out in England? It's it's coming, right? Yeah, it's 2025, I think. So there's, but there's still companies signing deals. So it's it's running right to the deadline. Nineties, two thousands; those are decades that produce globally recognizable kits. I mean, I'm thinking Dortmund's neon yellow, for example. And I also remember my years in middle school, high school in Austria, where we would take trips to Rome, and people in my class would buy a Lazio shirt, even though they weren't quite sure if they were Lazio fans. So that kind of thing started. Would you date that in the nineties, two thousands as well? The, you know the move to an international market to push to sell, to innovate on behalf of clubs, but also on behalf of the marketplace of mostly younger men who buy these kinds of replicas. I think 90s is where it becomes really evident. It's probably something that has grown. It's an accelerating growth that, that happens throughout the 80s. And just lots of elements. Uh, it's hard to know what's the chicken and an egg. That there are things like the increased popularity of TV and the the cost of TV deals and things like that. You have the real commercialization of different competitions in a single year. You have the advent of the Premier League and the European Cup gets purposefully branded, rebranded as a Champions League to maximise the profitability for the biggest clubs. But lots of things like that, where where exactly the catalyst is, it just becomes that football becomes more mainstream. And with that, everybody realises there's you can make more money from commercialisation and the, all these things come together. We can sell to women, we can sell to a broader range of men as well. We can not just sell them a football shirt, but let's sell them a tracksuit, let's sell them a bag, a hat, uh, everything. If people will pay £20 a month for television rather than watch for free, let's take that money. If they will pay £50 to attend a match, it's it's all realising that commercial potential of 
fans what what they're prepared to tolerate. And they're tolerating quite a bit, it turns out. The business of shirts is very successful. Before we get into today's collector's culture, online shirts culture, we can't, of course, speak about material culture and pretend like this is just stuff that falls from the sky. Somebody somewhere is making those shirts and is going home to their kids with a certain amount of money or not enough money and is working in these factories in certain conditions. Where do these shirts come from that we wear and that we pay a lot of money for if we buy them? And how are they being produced? Yeah, so it's like I imagine almost all aspects of clothing, they would have been made domestically until maybe the 60s and 70s. And then it would have been for certainly European firms going to Eastern Europe and then North Africa, Tunisia, Morocco, and then from maybe the 1980s or so, China and the Far East. And as you say, the sole motivation for this is there are lower wages in and, and overall costs. And I think people are unaware of this for a certain period. And then particularly in the mid-90s, late-90s, some of the working practices come under a lot of scrutiny, the working conditions, the low wages, et cetera. And people like Nike and Adidas in particular are forced to address this. And, you know, there are certainly stricter regulations than there were 25 years ago. But still, when you look at recent EU reports, uh, maybe only a few years ago, it's clear from a far from an ideal situation. The other last thing we should talk about and that your book addresses too is the growth of very big often online bubbles of shirt collectors so the effort to to buy certain kinds of shirts authenticate certain kinds of shirts and all it takes for you if you're listening is just go on ebay and look at what shirts of your favorite club are selling for what people are prepared to pay for which jersey from which time period to get a sense of how big this market is out there when does that start I mean, my, my hunch is it's a heavily male culture. It's a certain generation that grew up with the commercialization of shirts, but also a generation that knows a lot and really values that material culture around football, which for a long time, football historians didn't see. Yeah, it's, it's definitely uh, a very male. You know, there are female kit collectors, but it's very, very male space. I think there are different generations. So there were kit collectors who were interested in the, the 1980s, 1990s at the start, but it's, it isn't that common a hobby. And I don't think in the way that there were Star Trek conventions or other ways that people could share their interest, there weren't those platforms or spaces that people, it's very difficult to take your collection of shirts anywhere. So to, to sort of share and talk about them was quite difficult. And so I think really with the emergence of the internet that's an important catalyst and, and that social element maybe 2005 things like twitter something like that also ebay becomes very important because where do you source a Borussia Dortmund and Austria Vienna shirt they're not something that appears normally in the your local car boot sales so where do you find them? So that becomes really important. If you've got something where you're collecting things from around the world, eBay, as for many other hobbies, becomes a key thing. What is the highest price 
shirt you have seen around these spaces that somebody actually paid for? Oh, goodness. Um, somebody actually paid for it, I know. Or maybe um, something that you paid for, highest one. I am a long way from paying pay what other people but they are afraid. But, uh, but you're a professor too. We're wealthy. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're in it for this. Everybody's in academia for the salary. That's that's right. Um, so despite my hefty professor salary, I, I don't spend a lot of it. Once my Ferrari's um, paid for itself, you know, there's, there's not much left. So... <laughs> There's definitely, you know, easily shirts, seven, eight hundred pounds or so. These are just replica shirts, uh, particularly if you're talking in a a kind of commercial space from a commercial provider of of vintage shirts. You you could see some that are around thousand pounds. It's what, thirteen hundred dollars, something like that. Right. Add a couple of hundred to get to get to the dollar amount. Yeah. 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 And and then it escalates when you go to the match-worn shirts, which is a whole different sphere of collecting. What do you think about the trend? And I observed it just this last May when I was was in London. Uh, Kids, cardboard signs. Um, I don't know. Declan Rice, can I have your shirt? What do we make of that phenomenon? I know clubs have reacted in different ways to it. I don't don't know. It's... um... Of course, you understand why kids want them. There are examples of them then rapidly appearing on eBay afterwards, but it must be lovely as a kid. I, I never got close to receiving one, but it for a kid who is a, a true fan, that must be an incredible thing to have, maybe even more so than one of us as an adult to have that. But it... I don't know what the right way is to go about it or to assign them if kids are going to get them, but yeah, it's uh, not very popular. Makes it so hard for players too. Yeah. To walk if you're a player who is facing like yeah. five cardboard signs at every game, what do you do? If you and I were to look into the future, 10 years, what are jerseys going to look like then? Do you expect many innovations? Do you expect much change? Are we are we entering a phase of dramatic overhaul like some of the ones we talked about now? Or are we pretty much set to stay where we are at today in terms of shirt culture and also shirt collecting culture? That's a really good question. Um, I think you see the price go up when you look across and see the... I don't know this very well, but look across the American football jerseys and the basketball jerseys that they think they're a lot more expensive. And maybe the, the full ultra player versions, maybe two or $300. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I can't, I see that that must be in the future somewhere. I think the, the ever more exclusive tiers that we have this, player issue tier and could see even a third version coming out that's ultra rare ultra expensive i think the there's also been a a huge transition in the coming generation so that those born maybe in the last 15 to 20 years of driven in part by things like fifa that following clubs as players as much as clubs that 
you were a fan of Messi or Ronaldo in a way that maybe our generation weren't. And so maybe there being more personalization of the shirt according to the player that within this Manchester United, then almost like the the helmet in Formula One, that there's a, an element of player-specific personalization. I can't see that not happening. And I'm getting the first reports out of Germany of the first um, Saudi Arabian shirts with number seven and Ronaldo on it cited, worn by okay. kids on public transports. And I shudder, but it's that's an expression of what you described. And all the messy shirts that you see here in America now that are pink in Miami. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the, <laughs> those those things are going to, to follow. And then whoever the sponsors are, it's just what what is the prevailing thing what what where are we as an economy you imagine things like ai companies as that becomes a massive part of the economy they will become very prominent I mean, we've you mentioned united is signing up snapdragon which i think is a processor brand that is related to ai so we've seen the crypto bubble and flop so anything that enters the economy wants some kind of credibility or has a genuine ev revenue stream that needs to grow what bigger more global platform can you have than a manchester united a chelsea a manchester city shirt right right where do you see your own journey as a writer as a as a shirt collector going is there not a book in the works is there any other project you're working on that's soccer related right now Yeah, so I'm working on a history of Umbro at the moment. So that will be, so Umbro will be 100 in May next year. So I'm busy finishing that off. And that's been really, really interesting. I, I knew a lot about them because they were the England supplier and they were the Manchester United supplier when I was a kid. So I had first-hand experience and they're a Manchester firm. Still are the West Ham supplier. Yes, more more clubs than any other brand in the Premier League this season for the first time in about 10 or 15 years. So, yeah, and so so doing that and then we'll, we'll just just see. I do bits of writing for different magazines. I do some podcasts and stuff like that. But the books are a big commitment. I've really, really enjoyed doing Pretty Polly. I really enjoyed doing this Umbro book, but especially as doing it as an amateur, I think it would have to be finding a project that you felt as passionately about. And there are only so many things that you can feel that strongly about, I think. It's a privilege to be able to do those things. I agree. Yeah. 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 The book is out from Pitch Publishing in Europe. So if you're listening to this there, you can get it. If you live in the US, you have to wait a little bit. Amazon at least still tells me there's a bit of a delay. Unless if you want to order directly from Pitch, that may be possible. And it's probably the better variant anyways for everyone involved other than Mr. Bezos. Thank you so much, Alex, for the time. I hope people check out the book and take a look at it. Think a little bit more about what kind of shirts they buy and what they put on and also how they hold their own clubs to account as we are in this, this liberal phase of broad appeal, commercialization, but also preserving the traditions that make soccer tick. Great. Well, th thank you for the invitation. I really enjoyed uh, enjoyed the chat today. Thanks, Al. Be well. Take care.
I really look forward to the next episode. It's with David Forster, a historian from Vienna and Austria, so my home country. He has done some, yeah, rather groundbreaking research about Matthias Schindler, arguably Austria's most famous footballer in the 1920s and 30s, who died shortly after Austria welcomed Hitler and welcomed him largely with open arms. Football in Austria was very big at the time. The Austrian national team was very successful at the time. And there are some anti-fascist myths and hero stories that surround this guy and really have an international appeal until today. They also echo some of Austria's own national myths after it became an independent nation again after World War II and will gently but honestly start to unravel some of those myths and learn a lot about the famous Austrian football at the time along the way. It's coming in two weeks. Until then, please leave a rating or comment if you haven't yet to spread the word. It's much appreciated. Or shoot me a voicemail and let me hear what you think. Be well. Mm-hmm.